morning and welcome to Straight Talking English Season 2, Episode 8. The first episode focusing on Romeo and Juliet. As ever, I am your host, Catherine, owner of straighttalkingenglish.com, author of some very, very fine revision guides which you can buy online, and str 8 Talk English on Twitter. Even though Romeo and Juliet only takes place... Well, it's only written about 10 years before Macbeth. The world is a very, very different place. For a start, we do not have a king on the throne. We have a queen. We have Queen Elizabeth I, Gloriana, the Virgin Queen, first of her name. And a lot of the things that people take for granted when Macbeth is written are emerging for the first time. We have a really, really exciting world in front of us for Romeo and Juliet, which is fab. I mean, it is far more exciting than the uh, depressing, treasonous paranoia of Macbeth. There's a couple of things that we need to consider before we can really get to grips with what's happening in Romeo and Juliet, both in and out of the play. And the first one is this idea of humanism. This is a philosophy, and the aim of which is to illuminate in its totality and its richness the figure of man. The idea is that we learn everything about the human condition. This is linked to what we call the Renaissance. Renaissance? Renaissance, like whatever, whatever. I think I've forgotten how to pronounce it because it's Renaissance or Renaissance, whatever, that thing. I'm drawing quite heavily today on my book of the week. I feel like I need to do a book club, which is Elizabeth Renaissance Prince, a biography by Lisa Hilton, which is an absolutely brilliant, brilliant book, especially if you're interested in Machiavelli and gender. And Hilton says, the discovery of Greek and Latin manuscripts, their study and diffusion, and the translation of Greek into more accessible Latin produced a wealth of knowledge which Europe had never seen before. Scholars worked on history and mythology in order to better understand the texts and produced works not just of literature and history but mathematics astronomy medicine and biology humanism represented a body of scholarship and literature that was secular without being scientific and that occupied a place of its own independent of though not opposed to both theology and the sciences with the advent of the printing press in 1450 the total change in the intellectual climate affected by humanism was disseminated again as never before by the new possibility of mass production what united humanists above all was a self-conscious belief that they, they lived in an age of dramatic progress of reinvention and wonder. The new learning was more than an intellectual and artistic movement. It transformed not only the way people thought, but the way they lived. Technological advances in warfare meant that towns looked physically different, and the way in which they were governed changed too. The period saw feudalism give way to capitalism, and with this a fundamental shift in the methods and practice of authority which emerged from the nation-state. The very nature of power was being altered. Rulers were becoming liberated from the constraints of medieval social structure, they were able to consolidate their power through the deployment of standing armies, more effective taxation, and a professionalised civil servant class. As the influence of both nobility and church diminished, rulers centralised power through their courts and began, notably, to engage with mercantilist politics designed to stimulate economic growth while depriving potential enemies of resources. Of course, such changes were tremendously varied, taking place at different rates and by different means across time and place. But by the end of the period, the emergent idea of the state can be seen as reflecting this dramatic shift. 
it. So basically, everything, everything changed. Everything went from being like this medieval knights in armour, dragons and stuff and feudal lords to being something that we recognise as the modern world in a relatively short space of time if you consider how many thousands and thousands of years of human history there were. And then within about a hundred, everything changed. Time is really interesting because Romeo and Juliet if you've read it before, the play takes place over about five days and Shakespeare does this like time compression trick that he does in Othello as well, where the amount of events seem longer than the amount of time it would be in real life. So we know that if we worked it all out in Romeo and Juliet, it would come up to being, it would come up to being like Monday through I think it's Friday through Sunday, but the point is that the amount of events make you feel like it's longer. In 1582, about 10 years before the play was written, Pope Gregory XIII decided to change the calendar, changing it from uh, the Julian to the Gregorian calendar. Basically, that meant he wiped out 10 days from October and it made our calendar that we have right now. Basically, he did this to stop um, the lunar months messing up the calendar and made it easier to find out when Easter was because he's the Pope and that's important. Elizabeth the first didn't adopt this and the UK was in what was called a time well what a book hilariously Rocky Horror style calls time war until the 18th century so we were 10 days behind the rest of Europe and because people knew this and because that time became something that a human being can decide for the rest of the world it means that Shakespeare can play these tricks on us we've got to think about London as well if we're talking about Romeo and Juliet because we know the play is set in Verona but Shakespeare is writing for a London audience you've got royals sites like uh, Westminster like Greenwich bordered with like very basic areas so think about how close Greenwich is to Southwark. It's about 25 minutes on the 188 from my house. You have visible aristocrats moving around regular people. So the idea of Lord Montague's son and Lady Capulet's daughter being people that you could see around town. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, that is entirely plausible. Booksellers, as I mentioned in that bit from Hilton, booksellers are everywhere. It means you can reproduce the written written words, written material very, very quickly. It wouldn't be considered like, you know, a beautiful book. More like a pamphlet or like a really, like those Dover Thrift editions of the plays that are like a quid on Amazon. But it means everyone can access ideas very, very quickly. We've got plagues as well. We've got a lot of plagues. The bubonic plague is described as waxing and waning in London. There are some outbreaks which will take about a quarter of the city. And there are some outbreaks that will take like three people. You'd have huge ones, you'd have small ones. You'd have reports from elsewhere, you'd have nothing. But it's always there. Things, other things which are always there, crime and its consequences. There are bits of decaying, chopped up dead bodies of criminals, like, stuck around. There are people in the pillory, people in the stocks. Like, when you're walking around, you will see the evidence of crime and the evidence of what happens if you are violent. I'm coming back to that in the next episode, actually, because I feel like violence deserves its own topic. If you're walking around London, the scenes in Romeo and Juliet are staring you in the face. 
everything is like literally something you'd see. Things you can't see though is the rest of the world. I mean, obviously, facts of the day, but that was intended as being quite poetic. We've discovered, quote unquote, discovered the new world. And people have discovered it personally through writing, through stories. So you can argue that it's like a personal discovery of the idea. Even though we know that when Columbus got there, there were clearly some people living there and it didn't really count as a discovery. It's like saying I've discovered a mysterious place called my mum's living room. Uh, there's people already living there, but uh, it's a discovery and now it's mine. But the point is that the world is bigger than we thought it was. People thought the world is like basically Europe, basically some bits of Asia and then just like question mark, hashtag, picture of sea monster. But no, there is a new world. There is a whole other half of the planet and the world is no longer small. The world is no longer your community only. You're accessing things from everywhere. Other things you might access, I'm getting so good with my links by the way, is the life of Queen Elizabeth I because it is very, very well known. Much like a celebrity today where every single moment of their life is being watched. It was very similar for the Queen because, I mean, people love to gossip. So this is just their gossiping basically. So you need a celebrity and it's the Queen. So Queen Elizabeth I, just the basic stuff we know. Daughter of Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn. Father had mother executed on charges of infidelity. Queen, Vic Queen Elizabeth was kind of just shuttled around when she was a kid. When her sister, when her sister Mary was on the throne, she was accused of treason. But in between, she just kind of lived this sort of weird like foster life where you stay with this person for a bit and you stay with this person for a bit. And when she was 14 years old, the same age as Julia is, she had what we can see today as being hugely, hugely inappropriate relationship with an older man. This guy, Thomas Seymour, was married to Catherine Parr, Henry VIII's sixth wife, and Elizabeth's stepmom. So 14-year-old Elizabeth is shipped off to the stepmom. And quoting from Hilton again here, Thomas Seymour began to visit Elizabeth in her bedroom. He flirted with her and Elizabeth flirted back. He teased her by threatening to climb under the bed covers and saw her bare-legged in her shit. So like saw her in her pyjamas. Giggling and whispering and the agonising excitement of accidental touches. Anyone who's been a teenager can remember how that feels and Elizabeth was a teenager who'd been starved of easy physical affection. Seymour playfully banked her buttocks. Oh Jesus, if I heard about this from a student, I would be phoning social services like now. He kissed her, protesting to Elizabeth's governess, Catherine Ashley, that it was all in fun. Mistress Ashley reported her concerns to Catherine Parr, who not only dismissed them, but began to participate in what modern eyes would regard as a very unwholesome sex game. The Seymours teased Elizabeth together, and Catherine even held Elizabeth's arms behind her back as she struggled, while her husband tore her gown into a hundred pieces. Elizabeth felt encouraged. She became bold enough to allow Seymour to take her in his arms while the household was a, a different place in spring 1548 which when Catherine saw it finally seemed to shake her out of her delirium. So it's celebrity gossip. Reading that now I'm like oh my god no 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 no. But people knew about this. Nothing that the royals did was private. The idea of a 14 year old noble girl having a flirt is, is that's totally that's totally normal. That, that is some salacious gossip and in no way am I condoning 
this at all because as I say 2019 no and if this is happening to you tell someone she had this weird like secret long-term relationship with the Earl of Leicester because I mean allegedly Elizabeth is the virgin queen she never married she never had any like public consorts or anything like that whether she was actually a virgin and had not had a boyfriend it's a separate matter but she had this very long-term close loving friendship that involved love letters with the Earl of Leicester the idea of secret forbidden love having a love that cannot be expressed in public yeah this is interesting this is standard the theme in Romeo and Juliet that's coming up in Elizabethan life also the idea of intrusion as being kind of a political convention which I find is really weird but the idea of Romeo intruding into Juliet's garden, into Juliet's balcony, it's actually kind of a standard tactic for getting someone to notice you. So the Scottish ambassador came to see Elizabeth, which is when Mary Queen of Scots was on the throne, and Elizabeth kept saying things like, oh, but who's prettier, me or her? Who's better at music, me or her? So he didn't answer, being a sensible chap. He was like, oh, you're both really good. But he, she arranged for him to have a private tour of the palace that meant he accidentally saw her practicing music so he had to say that she was the best and Romeo intruding onto Juliet's garden we find creepy but it just kind of a notice me notice me tactic for Elizabeth. The game of courtly love as well. The flirting that Romeo and Juliet do seems really weird to us now and I have whenever I've told act one scene five I have referred to it as that weird flirting but nobility and noble flirting is this kind of weird game. You're not supposed to take too seriously, it's a kind of sport. The Earl of Essex, a bit later on in Elizabeth, Elizabeth's life, was apparently a handsome dude. He has no beard and a moustache. Whoa. And Elizabeth thought he was quite cute. They had this like flirting with letters like, oh, I love you so much. I love you so much. And he said, the delights of this place cannot make me unmindful of one in whose sweet company I have enjoyed as much as the happiest man does in his highest contentment. If my horse could run as fast as my thoughts do fly, I would as often make mine eyes rich in the beholding the treasure of my love as my desires do triumph when I seem to myself in a strong imagination to conquer your resisting will like it's kind of cute right like oh i love you i love you cool i'm coming back to this idea of courtly love a bit later i've decided the episodes of the series and i'm just making this one kind of general if you want to know more about this hold your horses for a couple of episodes bear with me but the second that essex took it beyond like a fun flirty game it all went wrong for him because he made the mistake of bursting in into her bedroom. Hilton again, the swooning lover, crashed into Elizabeth's chamber in his filthy travelling clothes, so full of dirt and mire that his very face was full of it to confront his bare mistress, barely out of bed. Her wrinkles brutally exposed in the morning light and her wig off. He was held in contempt and basically just fired from everything. So you play the game, but if you take it too seriously, you lose. Much like Romeo and Juliet, you should not be taking it seriously. Serious. Within Elizabeth's court as well, and um, even though she was allegedly quite Puritan, like in her personal life, she expected those around her to behave with like moral integrity. People around her, mostly because they were like young people, had these secret marriages. And the idea of having a marriage in secret while someone else disapproves is gossip that people know about. It, Hilton says she's obsessively taken up with the kaleidoscopic 
unique aspects of transgressive sexuality, most particularly the insistent pull of family relationships and the counterweight of desire. And in fact, in 1574, she broke one of her ladies-in-waiting's fingers with a candlestick because she is so angry that her lady had married this guy called John Scudamore. Like, you would literally get in prison. In 1594, Lady Bridget Manners secretly married Robert Tyrrett, whom Elizabeth imprisoned, placing his wife in the custody of the Countess of Bedford. In 1596, Mary Fitton became pregnant by the Earl of Pembroke. He refused to marry her and ended up in prison. By this time, this lady had started an affair with someone else. Like, there's these secret marriages as evading the authorities. This is the part and parcel of celebrity gossip of the day. These are things that the audience are like, yeah, yeah, this is this is what the upper classes do, isn't it? This is what they do. Like, it's just kind of funny when you think about it. As I mentioned in Macbeth, Shakespeare does tend to just like crib other people's stories. And one of the things that we need to realise is that the Romeo and Juliet story has been around for a long, long time. Now, I don't know if you're familiar with Midsummer Night's Dream or not, but it's kind of famous for having this play within a play. So these actors are rehearsing a play and then a bunch of stuff happens to them. And then at the end, they perform their play as um, like conclusion of a subplot in the main action. I'm not explaining it very well. Do go and see Midsummer Night's Dream. It is really, really good. But the play they put on is called Pyramus and Thisbe, which was first written down by the famous Roman writer Ovid in his book called Metamorphosis or Metamorphes. Oh my days, I really can't pronounce anything this morning. It's 10 to 10 in the morning as I'm recording this. I think I'm half asleep. But tell me if this sounds anything like Romeo and Juliet. Now Thisbe returns, not yet free of fear, lest she disappoint her lover. And she calls for him with her eyes and her mind, eager to tell him about the great danger she escaped. Though she recognises the place and the shape of the familiar tree, the colour of the berries puzzles her. She waits there. Perhaps this is it. Hesitating, she sees quivering limbs writhing on the blood-stained earth and starts back terrified like the sea that trembles when the slightest breeze touches its surface, her face showing whiter than boxwood. But when staying a moment lover, a moment longer, she recognises her lover. She cries out loud with grief, striking at her innocent arms, tearing her hair, cradling the beloved body. She bathes his wounds with tears, mingling their drops with blood, planting kisses on his cold face. She cries out, Pyramus! What misfortune has robbed me of you? Pyramus, answer me! Your dearest Thisbe calls to you. Obey me, lift your fallen head. At Thisbe's name, Pyramus raises his eyes, darkening with death, and having looked at her, buried them again in darkness. When she recognised her veil and saw the ivory scabbard without its sword, she said, Unhappy boy, your own hand and your love have destroyed you. I too have a firm enough hand for once, and I too love. It will give me strength in my misfortune. I will follow you to destruction, and they will say I was a most pitiful friend and companion to you. Yeah, it does sound a little bit like it, doesn't it? In fact, the whole story had been cribbed from Midsummer Night's Dream, as I mentioned, but was a really big inspiration for Romeo and Juliet. The two lovers in this have the gods resolve things by the end, because it's a very, very ancient story. And also, they are separated, but they're not separated emotionally by fighting, they're separated physically by a wall. He also, Shakespeare also cribbed the story from a guy called Arthur Brooks, 1560 long 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 narrative poem i was going to try and read it but it's 133 pages long called romeo and juliet <laughs> I, oh my god like did they not have any original ideas 
And Romeus and Juliet begins with Love hath inflamed twain by sudden sight, and both do grant, grant the thing that both desire, they wed and drift by counsel of a friar. Young Romeus climbs, fair Juliet's bower by night. Three months does he enjoy his chief delight. By Tybalt's rage provoked unto ire, he payeth death Tybalt for his hire. A banished man, he scapes by secret flight, new marriage is offered to his wife. She drinks a drink that seems to reave her breath, they bury her that sleeping yet have life. I think life and breath are supposed to rhyme, um, but this is really terrible writing. Her husband hears the tidings of her death, he drinks his bane, and she with Romeus's knife, when she awakes herself, alas, she slayeth. It begins with a sonnet. It begins with basically exactly the same prologue. There's a big difference for a start. Romeo and Juliet takes nine months to play to fruition. In our Romeo and Juliet, it's five days. It has a clear moral message, which Shakespeare took out, which was if we give in to lust and ignore the advice of our parents, we will hasten to an unhappy death. So you heard it here first, folks. If you don't listen to your mum and dad, you are going to die. I mean, okay, okay. Okay, intense though, intense though. Tybalt, Mercutio and the nurse have got much bigger parts and they are much more important. Shakespeare ages down Juliet as well. Juliet is very much mature 16 in Romeus and Juliet, but she's she's 14, she's a lot more immature. Plays also move to Italy. Italian culture is a thing that we do need to know about because John Muller, John Mullen, the historian, says that it was the primary land of Shakespeare's imagination. But people on the whole were only familiar with it through literature so it became this place that's like you can imagine anything you want to happening here a lot of the form of poetry the sonnets a lot of the literature is coming from italy contemporaries of shakespeare were very very interested in what was felt to be this hugely exciting cultural place shakespeare himself couldn't read italian but he read the translation and other people around him were joking that like you know language of love is Italian. I mean, do we agree with this now? I don't know. Uh, my boyfriend is Italian. Well, like, he's half Italian. He's got citizenship. And I keep asking him about this, and he's like, that's the wrong kind of Italian. You're asking me about the other kind. And I'm like, how many kinds of Italian are there? Turns out, at least for Shakespeare, there's a few. Italy itself, if it's set in Italy, it's a kind of code. So if you say, like, my book is set in Italy generically, it means it's kind of a place of learning, cultivation, the finer things. Verona, where Romeo and Juliet is set, is the place where love is nurtured and grows. The reason we know this is because it was in another play by Shakespeare, Two Gentlemen of Verona. If you're from Florence, you are hot-headed and turn on a moment, turn on a second. This is it. I'm ready to fight you. Venice, if you're a man, means you're rich and powerful. And if you're a woman from Venice, it means uh, <laughs> I'm trying to think of a euphemism here. You may well be a courtesan or open to many different kinds of affection. A lot of the romantics, thinking back to season one and romantic poets, they saw this link between Shakespeare and Italy as being very, very inspirational. The French writer Madame de Stael massively credited Romeo and Juliet with inspiring her writing in the, the 19th century. She said, Romeo and Juliet is an Italian subject. The scene takes place in Verona. People still point out the lover's tomb. Shakespeare wrote the play with the full power of the southern imagination. An imagination which is triumphant in happiness and yet goes so easily from that happiness to despair 
them from despair to dare. Shakespeare, better than any other foreign writer, understood Italy's national character, the fertile mind which invents a thousand different ways of expressing the same feeling, and the oriental eloquence which uses the images from the whole of nature to depict what takes place in the heart. In this work there is the sap of life, brilliance of language which is characteristic of the country and its inhabitants. The play of Romeo and Juliet, translated into Italian, seems to return to its native tongue. She, her emphasis on intense emotion and on this like national character of Italy means that it can be argued that it's a catalyst for many of the elements that we associate with romanticism. Think back to season one, Blake, Wordsworth, all that jazz, all the stuff I moaned about. Part of romanticism is a focus on the self, of getting away from convention, of expressing your emotions authentic and that began to start in this time. I was absolutely blown away by this because I had no idea this was a thing. But around the writing of Julie, Romeo and Juliet is the first point at which people began to consider themselves as individuals rather than like as a composite of you know I'm like this person, I'm like this person, I'm part of this community. It became this move to considering yourself as an individual. This formed I'm quoting from a historian called Ian Mortimer. An enhanced sense of self can be seen in the growing tendency in the second half of the century for people to write diaries in, ex in which they express their internal lives. People's increased sense of themselves and their own suffering clearly facilitated the awareness of the suffering in others. We find much more empathy in the works of Shakespeare and the writer of the late 16th century than we do in the text of their medieval forebears. It might be due to books as well because reading a book is kind of a thing you do on your own. I mean, you might read to someone else, but that's listening, that's speaking. We're encouraging this personal introspection. What's funny as well, quoting Mortimer, mirrors or looking glasses were available for just half a labourer's daily wage. The personal diary as we knew, as we know it evolved, as people increasingly wrote chronicles of the event took place in their community, interwoven with their personal experiences and reflections. So basically, because mirrors were cheap, people look at their faces. <laughs> <laughs> they begin to consider themselves as individuals. I mean, really, really reductive. That just made me laugh. The thing is, this is especially, this sense of individualism kind of comes out a lot for men and women differently. Italian women in particular, a lady called Tullia de Aragona wrote a book in 1547 called A Dialogue in the Infinity of Love, arguing there was nothing wrong in sexual desire and the association of women and the sexual act with sin was itself immoral and misogynistic. Gaspara Stamper in 1554 wrote a series of passionate and moving lyrical poems following her abandonment by a lover which demonstrated a degree of literary skill and argumentative wit few men could match. All of these were just the crest of a great wave women's writing published and unpublished. Letters, religious tracts, diaries, memoirs and recipes. By the end of the century affordable self-help books written by women for women were being printed and reprinted by the thousands at cost of no more than a skilled worker's daily wage. They helped shape women's identity and reinforce a growing sense of individuality. Printing was thus the catalyst for a whole new relationship between women and knowledge and by implication between women and men. Quoting again from Mortimer, great book called Centuries of Change. And that's the po last point I really want to share with you because Romeo and Juliet, as well as being a product of a growing Elizabethan world, as well as being a product of an obsession with Italy, a product of Shakespeare's research, a product of changing towns a product of time. Romeo and Juliet 
is a product of the growth of the individual. A critic called Cotman, in his fundamental essay on Romeo and Juliet, said it's a story of two individuals who actively claim their separate individuality their own, the only way they can through one another. So, ba ba ba, I will leave you on that bombshell because remember, Elizabeth's life, cities, previous versions that are different, individuality. <laughs> oh my gosh, there is so much. I love this play. I'm really, really looking forward to sharing it with you. I'm going to drop this episode at the same time as the episode that summarises the plot. So you can switch in between them if you feel like. And the next proper episode I'm going to do is on violence because this is very, very interesting. I hope you have a great day. I will catch up with you very soon. Don't forget to enjoy the episode on the plot of Romeo and Juliet and I will speak to you very soon.